Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want something and you got it. <laughs> DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. I've been looking into this rock and roll stuff, and believe me, what I see disgusts me. A bunch of hoodlums jigging in theater aisles, whooping it up. Disgusting. Revolting. Now we need an organized resistance to this vulgar, lewd, rocking and rolling. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening, and welcome to episode two of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. I'm Christian Swain, behind the mic in San Francisco. Archaeology, our good friends at archaeology.com inform us, is the study of human activity in the past. In the U.S., it's considered a branch of anthropology, the study of humanity. It is a multidisciplinary approach, going at a question or an issue using many tools of many trades. Study of the historical record, sociology, geology, the life sciences, and so on. For our purposes, Rock and roll archaeology means looking at rock and roll from lots of different angles, digging in and studying the details, and now and then taking a step back to examine context, the big picture. We refine our techniques and revise our views as new evidence is uncovered. So, of course, we welcome your ideas, your approach, your input. Please subscribe and leave reviews on iTunes. You can find more details on this episode, including the show notes and links to the artists mentioned in the episode credits, and on our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook to discuss the episode, where we will answer questions, comments, and even the occasional unhinged rant. You can email us and find all our social media and contact info at the website. We'd love to hear from each and every one of you. And please join us as a fellow digger of rock and roll. In our first episode, The Precursors, we got into the post-war culture and political landscape of the United States and to a lesser extent Great Britain. We talked about some early roots of the rock and roll trade and social forces that shaped early rock and roll and made it possible. We tried to show that rock and roll influences and is influenced by the larger society. Indeed, that is a main theme, a central assertion of this show. 
we met some early legends, Ray Charles, the disc jockey Alan Freed, Bill Haley, and we were briefly introduced to rock and roll's first superstar, Elvis Presley. In episode two, we'll get to know the king a lot better, and we will meet some new folks who will also cast long shadows, uh, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, and others. Episode one also turned over some rocks to reveal some ugly socio-political forces that were around then and still linger today. Racial segregation and anti-communist hysteria. We explored how these malignant mindsets cramp up and tramp down artistic expression in America. And we found a reflection and a reaction, a nascent counterculture coming to boil beneath the bland conformist surface of middle-class American life. This episode will spend more time on the music and on the people who made it. Larger forces, trends in society will be touched on too, especially the explosive growth of television. So let's get to it right now. This is episode two, Elvis and the Rise of Television. How about this one? Then I'm walking in Memphis Just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis Nice. Very nice, but a bit too serious. All that legendary stuff is still well into the future. Well, I heard the news That's good to rock it tonight Well, I heard the news That's good to rock it tonight There it is. Perfect. Elvis is still a king in the making at this point. It's the fall of 1954, and he's a regional sensation in the Mid-South. That's Tennessee to West Texas. The music is raw and unpolished, but powerful just the same, and a hell of a lot of fun. If I could find a white man who had that Negro sound and that Negro feel, I, I could make a billion dollars. The receptionist at Sun Studios in those days, Mary Kiesker, recalls her boss, Sam Phillips, saying that over and over. Sam was born the son of sharecroppers in Alabama, and as a boy, he picked cotton alongside black laborers. He heard the field chants, the work songs throughout those long, hot days. Nowadays, we call that music the Delta Blues. Those expressions of joy and pain he heard as a boy made a lifelong impression. In an interview with biographer Eric Olson, Phillips put it like this. Blues, it got to people, black and white. Now think about life, how difficult, yet also how good it can be. They'd sing about it, they'd pray about it, they would preach about it. This is how they relieve the burden of what existed day in, day out. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me reintroduce my new Rocket 88. 
Yes, it's great, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. Phillips introduced that cut for Chess Records, Rocket 88, by Jackie Bernston and the Delta Cats. The band leader and songwriter was 19-year-old Ike Turner. The music historian Peter Gorolnik calls it the first rock and roll song, and he makes a good case. For now, it illustrates how Sam Phillips was a guy who was very much ahead of the curve. Years before Elvis walked into Sun Studios, Sam had a sharp eye and keen ear for talent. Sam discovered Johnny Cash, Alan Wolfe, B.B. King, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Roy Orbison. That's an impressive roster, and it's a very incomplete list. Sam was not immediately sold on Elvis. According to Peter Grolnick's definitive two-volume bio of Elvis, the recording sessions that produced That's All Right was the fourth go-around for Elvis' son and was not going any better than the first three. Sam called a break, and Elvis and the boys, Scotty Moore and bassist Bill Black, two local musicians Sam recruited to work with Elvis, started fooling around with That's All Right. It was the first thing all night that made Sam Phillips perk up his ears and listen. Something at some point about the young Elvis intrigued Sam Phillips, some kind of commercial potential, but it's easy to guess part of why Sam stuck it out and gave Elvis several second chances. He he was a nice kid, immaculately groomed, a sharp dresser, yes sirs and no ma'ams, adored his mother and sang in church on Sundays. Hair was slicked back and kind of long, but in those days lots of truck drivers affected that style, along with the pork chop sideburns. And like Sam, the young man on the other side of the glass at the Memphis Recording Service that evening had grown up in grinding poverty in the Deep South. Vernon Presley went to prison for kiting a check in 1938, and Gladys Presley and her young son, Elvis, went through some tough times. They lost their little shotgun house in Tupelo, took government food assistance, and had to live with relatives. Mother and son shared a small room in a boarding house for a while. Whatever the reason... Sam had finally found his unicorn, the mythical crossover artist he had so often talked to his receptionist Mary Kiesker about. Interestingly, in later years, Sam told biographer Elvis was his second best discovery. His favorite was Helen Wolfe, Sam Phillips, blues man through and through. On October 16, 1954, two weeks after an appearance at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville that didn't go well, It's unconfirmed, but legend has it the talent coordinator basically told Elvis, "Uh, don't quit your day job. Elvis Presley played That's All Right on a competing live radio show in Shreveport called the Louisiana Hayride. The first set got a tepid response, but the house drummer, DJ Fontana, sat in on the second set and gave Elvis Presley's onstage moves a little oomph and emphasis using accents he'd learned playing gigs in strip clubs. Right after the show, Louisiana Hayride contracted Elvis for one year of weekly appearances. Elvis traded in the guitar Gladys bought him back in the fifth grade for a new Martin, and Sam Phillips had the boys hit the road. His energy was incredible. His instincts was just amazing. I just didn't know what to make of it. There was just no reference point in the culture to compare it. Roy Orbison, all of 19 at that time gave the account to Gorlnick of an Elvis gig he saw in Odessa, Texas. 
It is now early 1955, and thanks to non-stop touring and a steady stream of singles coming out of Sun Records, Elvis is on the cusp of national stardom. Colonel Tom Parker was managing Hank Snow, the top country singer in the nation at that time. Parker had noticed Elvis, liked what he saw, and booked the act known as Elvis Presley, Scotty, and Bill to open up for Snow. That's the show Roy Orbison saw in Odessa, and a young Buddy Holly opened the show in Lubbock. The Parker-Presley relationship is something we can devote an entire podcast to and will probably do in the future. And in later years, Parker would make some dreadful decisions on behalf of his artist. His cut of Presley's earnings eventually rose to an unconscionable 50%. That's not a manager. That's a parasite. But we'll do our best to be fair and say that at this point, Parker is the well-connected, fierce advocate Elvis Presley needs to take the next step. March 3, 1955, Elvis makes his television debut on the TV edition of Louisiana Hayride. It went well, but around the same time, he fails an audition for author Godfrey's Talent Scouts, a national show on CBS. The records were selling and the live shows were sensational, but getting radio airplay in the South was still problematic. R&B DJs thought he sounded too white. Country DJs thought he sounded too black. The big national break would come, but there were still more dues to pay for the charismatic young singer. We'll come back to Elvis, but this feels like a good place to change it up and talk about television in the 50s. Some basic facts about American television in the 1950s. First of all, at the opening of the decade, it barely existed. That would change, and quick, unbelievably quick. Approximately 44,000 television sets were in the U.S. at the opening of the decade, almost all of them in the New York metro area. But in 1950, over 6 million sets were sold in the U.S. In 1950, there were no commercial television stations west of the Mississippi. By 1955, networks spanned the continent. By 1959, 90% of American homes had a television set. Writing for the Grolier's Encyclopedia, the NYU professor Mitchell Stevens opens the entry on television history with this. Few inventions have had as much effect on contemporary American society as television. Like any good academic, Professor Stevens carefully parses his words and qualifies his statements. But, due respect to the professor, who is a noted scholar of media and mass communications, we at the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast will boldly proclaim that no invention has had as much effect on contemporary American society as television. None. Not one. Certainly not in the time frame we've picked, 1945 to 1995. I said it. I meant it. I'm here to represent it. TV was it. Starting in 95, one could argue, and it would be a hell of a good argument, that the Internet and the personal computer began taking over as the dominant media platform in American life, pushing TV aside over the next decade, much like TV pushed radio aside in the decade spanning 1945 to 55. Our culture 
is now watching so much electronic media in so many different formats, like the one you're listening to and hopefully enjoying at this very moment, that it takes some imagination to really get how big and how fast and how unprecedented this ascent of television was back in the 50s. Nowadays, we're used to things moving a lot quicker. Back then, not so much. And we contend that this rise of television and the rise of rock and roll formed a feedback loop. No, not so much a feedback loop, a a change of metaphor. Rather, imagine a critical mass, the phenomenon that immediately precedes a nuclear explosion. The hotter the temperature, the faster the reaction, and the faster the reaction, the hotter the temperature, spiraling upwards together, and in far less time than the blink of an eye... As I said in the intro to episode one, rock music is a window that I look through at the world around me. So we will look at television through the rock and roll window and see how they affected each other. The early TV sets, well, they sucked. Most people alive today can't remember small screen black and white TV sets. I'm in my 50s now, and I can barely recall them. Big, bulky consoles surrounding a laughably small screen, glowing vacuum tubes in the back that drew a lot of power. But the technology was leaping ahead on the consumer end, and the technology used to produce and broadcast television program was getting better every year as well. As we noted... In 1950, 6 million sets were sold in America, and consumers were just getting warmed up. Overnight, the TV set was second only to the automobile on the list of must-have things for an American household. Each model year brought improvements. Bigger screens, clearer audio, better reception. In 1954, color. You could even get a klutzy remote attached to the set by a long cable. And the technical and artistic quality of the programming leapt ahead as well. Early TV programming was weighted towards one-off events, plays, and parades, and Milton Berle's vaudeville-style variety shows. Sporting events, obviously, but the public was thirsty for serial programming with recurring characters, so the situation comedy, the police procedural, and the soap opera formats were adapted from radio and improved. As Kenneth, the goofy NBC page and television fanatic on the show 30 Rock, says... Television. And more than jazz or musical theater or morbid obesity, television is the true American art form. CBS and NBC established national networks by the end of 1951. A few years later, ABC followed suit. Though it was laborious, a gadget called the Kinescope made rebroadcast of East Coast shows possible three hours later on the West Coast. In 1956, Ampex introduced the videotape recorder, and tape delay made coast-to-coast programming possible without significant loss of quality. Studios hummed with activity. As McCarthyism faded, there was room for TV entertainment to get more topical, 
a little edgier, tame by today's standards for sure, but newer, fresher voices were starting to be heard. Fine young writers like Harlan Ellison and Patty Chayefsky honed their skills writing television screenplays. Add it all up, the TV sets themselves, production and broadcast equipment, the advertising sales, the publishing related to TV, the new lifestyle products like... Yes, TV dinners, and you have gigantic amounts of capital, labor, products, and services coming and going. TV fed and was fed by economic prosperity in the 50s and 60s. And pretty much overnight, it's what everyone is talking about at the water cooler or on the playground. So by Sunday night, August 7th, 1955, when Bill Haley and his comments appear on The Ed Sullivan Show... Well, that following Monday, Rock Around the Clock was the national conversation from Maine to San Diego. So we've got an emerging and improving new media technology that has quickly conquered the culture. And it's thirsty for fun, outrageous content that'll get 50 million people watching at a time. Uh, Elvis, how about you come on back and pay us a visit once again? In early 1956, Elvis Presley signed with RCA Records. Well, strictly speaking, his dad, Vernon Presley, did. Elvis was not yet 21 and still considered a minor under the law at that time. Colonel Tom Parker didn't officially become his full-time manager until that summer, but it's pretty clear who called the shots. Sam Phillips' management contract with the young artist was bought out by RCA for $35,000, a princely sum of money in those days. Elvis used his signing bonus to buy his mama a pink Cadillac. In March... Elvis Presley's self-titled debut album was released. It was seven songs recorded at RCA in early 1956 and five from the Sun Sessions in 1955. For the RCA sessions, Bill Black, Scotty Moore, and DJ Fontana were joined by the already legendary guitarist Chet Atkins. Piano and backing vocals were added to thicken and sweeten the sound, but they managed to keep the simple, urgent feel that is all over the Sun recordings. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. I could die. The result was sensational. The first RCA release is Sublime, a perfect time capsule for 1956. A great new talent performing songs by great new writers like Carl Perkins, Ray Charles, and Little Richard, and by established tunesmiths like Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart. The best available recording gear was used, and the mix put Elvis front and center, over and above the fiery inspired playing from Atkins and the Boys. Go back and check this one out. It's the first modern rock album. The songs, the sequence, the cover art, everything about it. It's the template. That spring and summer, Elvis Presley busted out of regional stardom. Five singles were released in rapid sequence and just as quickly went gold. The DJ spun him and the kids snapped him up. Elvis Presley made his first national TV appearances, but these were just warm-ups for the really big shoe, Ed Sullivan, on Sunday nights on CBS. Actually... Ed did not introduce Elvis Presley on the September 9, 1956 broadcast of The Ed Sullivan Show. Sullivan was badly hurt in an auto accident a few weeks earlier. So guest host Charles Lawton emceed that night, 
and he flubbed it, introducing the country to Ellen Presley. The popular legend is that Sullivan had his camera operator shoot Presley from the waist up so as not to offend his audience with Elvis the Pelvis. Uh, By the way, Elvis absolutely detested that nickname. What really happened is a bit more complex. As we've already seen, Sullivan wasn't even there. He was in on the planning of the show and expressed some uh, misgivings about the moves he saw when he watched Elvis and his two June appearances on the Milton Berle show. At the second appearance at Berle's suggestion, Elvis performed without his guitar. Let him see you, son, was the advice the vaudevillian veteran gave the young man right before he went on stage. Specifically, Sullivan ranted that, uh, uh, Little Elvis was making an appearance as well. According to the Elvis biographers, Peter Brown and Pat Boesky, Sullivan said, he's got some kind of device hanging down. You can see the outline of his cock. This is a family show. Do you have any artificial plates or limbs? Not really, no. Uh, Would you... um... But then Elvis did an appearance on the Steve Allen show, and for the first time, Allen beat Sullivan in the ratings. So much for any misgivings about little Elvis. The Ed Sullivan show contracted Elvis Presley for three appearances for $50,000. The two shows originated in New York, but the Elvis segments were produced on a CBS soundstage in Los Angeles. Elvis was shot head to toe. This fact is confirmed by multiple sources, including Goralnik's, whose book we pretty much accept as gospel when it comes to Elvis. There was a little camera trickery, going to close up when Elvis would do his dance moves, but it didn't really matter. The live audience, just like a couple of years before at Overton Park in Memphis, well, they just lost their shit. They went nuts, and the sound of it carried out across the continent. The show grabbed an 82% share of the available TV audience that night. Well, over 60 million viewers. It was the largest audience in television history to that date. It was a big freaking deal, folks. On October 28th, Elvis did it again. The audience was a tad smaller, a mere 55 million or so this time. The beginning of that same month saw the release of the second RCA album, simply titled Elvis. That one also shot to number one on the pop charts, making Presley the first recording artist ever to release two number one albums in a single year. Now, right here, I'll assert something a bit controversial, something that will probably piss some of you off. This was it for Elvis. Sure, from the fall of 56 up until his induction into the U.S. Army in March of 1958 and Even well beyond that, Elvis ruled the pop charts. His concerts inspired hysteria, and he was catching fire internationally. His first three movies were big at the box office, and they were actually pretty good flicks. But Elvis was done as an innovative, vital force in rock and roll music. He would cast a long shadow. Rock history is full of stories of youngsters who saw Elvis on television, pestered their folks to get them a guitar for their birthday, and went on to become legends. Giants like Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and Bruce Springsteen all have stories like this to tell. 
But by the beginning of 1957, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and Buddy Holly, among others, were emerging as hitmakers, and they wrote their own tunes and largely controlled their own destinies. No Colonel Parkers for these guys. So there was now competition from hungry, inventive musicians, like these three, who were taking rock and roll to new places. Elvis needed to innovate and step it up to stay relevant. And that was impossible. Colonel Tom Parker didn't have the insight to understand any of this, and by 1957 the colonel had Elvis wrapped up in his parasitic grasp. From that year's giddy peak, Elvis was destined to a long, tragic slide all the way to the bottom. By the time of his death in 1977, at the age of just 42, Elvis was an obese, drug-addled paranoiac, a sad caricature of the guitar-slinging handsome stud who'd set the world on fire 20 years earlier. It wasn't all straight downhill. In 1968, Elvis did a comeback TV show on NBC that was absolutely electrifying. In my opinion, that show is the best thing out there for a young rock and roll archaeologist who wants to understand what all the fuss is about when it comes to Elvis. There's a link in the show notes. For a few years after the NBC special, it even looked like Elvis might stage a real comeback. But And if he had been able to take a year off at that point... Or, rest, get clean, and re-energize his music with some new collaborators, I think he would have made that comeback, and it would have been something really special. But there was no way in hell the greedy, short-sighted Parker would give him that chance. He just threw some more pills at his artist, pushed him out on stage, and cashed the checks. Despicable, and the consequences were tragic. So we leave Elvis now. Here, at the beginning of 1957, the first rock and roll superstar, young and vital, and taking on the world. It's how I choose to remember the king. train to the windy city of Chicago. Then we'll catch the L to the south side, to the headquarters of Chess Records, and meet the real Blues Brothers. They are an unlikely duo, Leonard and Phil Chess, two Jewish immigrants from Poland. Leonard was the older of the two, profane, energetic, a born salesman. The jovial, easygoing Phil Chess would hold down the fort in Chicago when Leonard would hit the road throughout the rural south, hawking records and scouting talent. Then they'd swap, Phil hitting the road, back and forth like that, tag team, and it was effective. The song we excerpted to open this discussion, Smokestack Lightning by Helen Wolf, set the tone pretty well. The rural gut bucket Delta Blues amplified and punched up by exposure to the gritty mean streets of Chicago's south side. The chest sound. Wolf, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, Sonny Boy Williamson, Little Walter, Jimmy Rogers, Willie Dixon, and Johnny Lee Hooker all recorded for chess, and they inspired and energized a generation of rock musicians on both sides of the Atlantic.
At a glance, Chess looks like a moderately successful independent label, a regional heavyweight that discovered and broke out a lot of influential, talented blues artists, along with a handful of notable crossover artists like Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, and Etta James. But there's a lot more to it. Chess artists left giant footprints all over rock music for decades. This is one of the great rock and roll stories. But for now, we just have to hit a few high points. Down the road, we will devote an entire podcast to Chess Records. I'm really looking forward to that one, and we hope you'll be there too. Right after the war, the brothers opened the Macomba Lounge, which quickly became a fixture of the music scene in Chicago in the late 40s. The Macomba rarely featured big names, local musicians for the most part, and Leonard tended to bring in players who were well regarded by the other musicians. The Macomba burned down in 1950. Nothing was ever proven, but the timing was just a little too perfect. The Chess Brothers used the insurance payout to add a modern recording studio to their newly acquired company, Aristocrat Records. They renamed it Chess Records at about the same time. Len liked the percussive hiss of the sound, like the downbeat that kicks off a song. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born I got a boy charge coming He's gonna be a son of a gun McKinley Morganfield, known to the world as Muddy Waters, was the one big star in the roster when the brothers bought the company. The brothers had noticed for some time that the blues artists taking the stage at the Macomba were not being recorded well. They saw an opportunity to do something about that, thanks to a very timely nightclub fire. In 1951, they started an association with our old friend Sam Phillips in Memphis, Remember the very first rock and roll song, Rocket 88 by Jackie Bernstein and the Delta Cats, recorded by Phillips? That was a chess release. Helen Wolf, Sam's favorite musical discovery, was another chess artist. But the relationship between Len and Sam soured after about a year. Leonard later would grumble that his falling out with Sam cost chess records the opportunity to sign Elvis Presley. Phil struck up a friendship around that time with Alan Freed, and Freed gave chess artists a lot of play. That friendship stuck and was very productive for both parties. Any rough patches were surely smoothed over by generous payola, a practice the brothers unapologetically used to get chess records played and played often. By 1954, chess had established itself as a leader in rhythm and blues, with a respected stable of artists and a strong presence in the Midwest and the South. But nationally, the R&B niche counted for less than 10% of total record sales. Chess was a big fish in a small pond. Len Chess was looking for the mirror image of the crossover artist Sam Phillips sought. Len wanted a black artist who sounded white, who could cross over from the other direction. And right about the time Elvis started making noise as an emerging star... Len Chess found his guy. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe bill. A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing out to run my vehicle. In 
May of 1955, Chuck Berry was gigging regularly at the Cosmopolitan Club in St. Louis, his hometown, and had made a bit of a name for himself around town. His band included the pianist Johnny Johnson. In over three years of playing together, the two had developed a great feel for each other. They would basically finish each other's sentences musically. Chuck was raised in a middle-class home. His mom played piano and directed the church choir. All six of the Berry children loved music, and their folks encouraged it. In high school, a friend gave him an old four-string tenor guitar, and that was it. Chuck was hooked. He taught himself the essentials, bought books, practiced constantly. Not long after he graduated, Chuck and a couple of buddies went for a joyride that turned into a robbery spree. He got sentenced to 10 years at the Missouri Reformatory for Young Men for that misadventure. Chuck used the time to focus on music and put together a singing group for the Sunday church service that was eventually allowed to sing at the white church services and even outside the prison farm at times. He also learned house painting as a trade, kept his nose clean, and with time off for good behavior, got cut loose in 1947, just a few days after his 21st birthday. By the end of 1952, Johnny Johnson invited the young hotshot to play the New Year's Eve show with Johnson's group, the Sir John Trio, and Barry stole the show, playing a variety of styles, but his country songs got the biggest response. Clubgoers left the show wondering, who's the black hillbilly? Nadine Kohadis, author of Spinning Blues Into Gold, the Chess Brothers and the Legendary Chess Records, picks up the story. A genial and modest man, Johnson didn't mind that Barry got the glory. When Barry asked him if he could be in charge and rename the trio, Johnson acquiesced. He didn't like the business end of the music. And besides, he'd say, Chuck was a go-getter, and I figured with him as a leader, we'd have more jobs and bigger success. Kohanas' book is authoritative, a great read, and serves as the primary source for our telling of the chess story. The feeling of the time and the place, and especially the music, is also well captured in the 2008 movie Cadillac Records. The movie has some problems as a historical record. The timeline's badly jumbled, for one thing, but it conveys the feel beautifully, and the music's wonderful. Links are in the show notes. So, it's May of 55, and Chuck loads up his red station wagon and heads up to Chicago with his high school buddy Ralph to see his idol, Muddy Waters. After the show, they approach Muddy for an autograph. And Chuck, who's not exactly shy, asks Muddy, Hey, I want to make a record. Could you suggest anyone in the business? Yeah, see Leonard Chess. The next Monday, Chuck staked out the chess offices and found Len. Sure, get me some tapes and come back, Leonard told him. Maybelline was recorded and released just a few weeks later. Rather than a traditional payola arrangement, Chess Records gave Alan Freed a co-writer's credit and the royalties that came with it. Freed pushed the song hard, which meant every other DJ in America did as well. By September, Maybelline was number one on the Billboard R&B charts and number five overall. Chuck and Chess had crossed over. Rollover Beethoven was a summer hit for Chess the following year, and Barry was second only to Elvis Presley's Alive Draw. Chuck was already notorious as a womanizer with a taste for kinks, so naturally he loved the road. In 1957, rock and roll music, and then 1958.
that right there, at least to me, is the succinct definition of rock and roll. That nimble but ferocious blast of electric guitar, the band kicking in hard behind it, and the singer stepping up to deliver the verse, all at a tempo that will have you drip in sweat inside of a minute of dancing. Ever since then, that recipe has been cooked up over and over a million different ways by rockers all around the world, and it still kicks your ass every time. Lightning in a bottle. Absolute fucking genius. Chuck Berry. Sit you right down in front. Time to testify. Time to shout. Gonna tell Aunt Mary about Uncle John. He claimed he has a music, but he's having a lot of fun. Whenever a man was caught between God and the devil, it was one Richard Wayne Penniman. Little Richard was born in Macon, Georgia in 1932 to Leva May and Bud Penniman, the third of 12 children. Bud was a church deacon and a bootlegger with a local tavern called the Tip Inn Inn. Saturday nights and Sunday morning, Bud Penniman would get him coming and going. Black Pentecostal churches, then and now, have a very special and, to put it mildly, exuberant style to their worship services. The music is central to it. Even as a small boy, Little Richard had a big singing voice, and the congregation loved to hear the mischievous kid with a funny walk. Richard was born with a slight birth defect, one leg was shorter than the other. His musical influences all hailed from the church. Brother Joe May, Mahalia Jackson, Marion Williams... Sister Rosetta Tharp was Richard's favorite gospel singer. She brought him up on stage at a show in 1947. The kid was a sensation, and Rosetta made sure he got paid. Ray Charles most notably brought gospel elements into popular music. I Got a Woman was a reworked gospel standard. Looking back, it seems like an easy, natural fusion. For generations now, a big percentage of America's best singers have come from gospel backgrounds. That's no accident. Passion is passion, whether it's for the Lord or for something a bit more earthbound. But Little Richard took the gospel R&B fusion to a whole new crazy and irresistible level. He also brought hints of gender-bending kinky sexuality to rock, both on and off stage. Hints that were about as subtle as a sledgehammer. And there were plenty of women and men ready to take him up on the offer. From reading Charles White's book and from press interviews with Little Richard, and there are many, unlike Elvis and Chuck, Little Richard loved media attention and was always good for an outrageous quote. It's pretty clear to me that he is just sexual, period. <laughs> Gay, straight, by, likes to do it, likes to watch, whatever, bring it on. The original lyrics to Tutti Fruity will drive home the point. Tutti Fruity, good booty. If it's tight, it's all right. If it's greasy, makes it easy. Like I said, sin is down front. Today, that is playful, but back then, folks considered it depraved, downright dangerous. And controversy and scrapes with the law would dog little Richard throughout the years. 
to continue with our celestial tale of sinners and singers. As a teen, Richard would skip school and sing with any traveling show coming through town. One of those tent transients was a Dr. Nobilio, who wore a turban, a colorful cape, carried a black stick, and used to prop something the doc called the devil's child, a dried-up body of a baby with clawed feet and horns on its head. Richard would belt away outside the show to draw a crowd in for some hoodoo fortune-telling. Okay, let's stop and parse this for just a moment. I first ran across the Dr. Nobilio bit in the Wikipedia entry on Little Richard. Charles White's biography, The Life and Times of Little Richard, the authorized press, is the original source of the Dr. Nobilio story. White had full access for his book, so the story probably comes from interviews with Richard. I mean, come on. Dr. Nobilio? Nobilio, a play on Nubile, I guess? Uh, even as a 14-year-old little Richard is a magnet for kinky, weird double entendre. Uh, we can surmise that much, certainly. Anyway, Dr. Nobilio told Richard he was going to be famous, but he had to go to where the grass was greener. At 16, Richard left Macon with another medicine show hustler, Dr. Hudson. Ran off and uh, joined the circus, you might say. As an exuberant youngster in Macon... He picked up the nickname Little Richard. Out on the Chitlin circuit in the early post-war years, Richard made it his stage name. He worked with music combos and dive bars and juke joints and as a drag performer in vaudeville tent shows, and it went like that for nearly a decade. Little Richard paid his dues. There were several false starts, including a contract with RCA, but nothing took off. He played for tips, took any gig he could, even washed dishes to survive. In 1955, he sent a two-song demo to Specialty Records and Art Roop. Roop was a lifelong fan of gospel, and Specialty's niche was straight gospel and gospel-flavored R&B artists. Roop was also something really rare in those days, a white record company owner who treated his black artists fairly and kept honest books. Richard lucked out when Roop signed him. Upon hearing the songs, Art felt he may have found Specialty's answer to Ray Charles, Art hired Robert Bumps Blackwell to produce and sent Little Richard to New Orleans to record at J&M Studios. Backed by Fats Domino's band, the sessions uh, were not going well. Bumps took his frustrated artist down to a local club to relax. Richard naturally jumped on stage and began performing an improvised risque tune he did on the Chitlin circuit, Tutti Frutti. Bumps had his hit. They went back to the studio and banged it out in three takes, after professional songwriter Dorothy Lebostri rewrote some of the raunchier lyrics. Tutti Frutti became an instant hit, reaching number two on the Billboard R&B charts and crossing over to the pop charts in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Tutti Frutti eventually sold a million copies, and Richard followed up with Long Tall Sally, another crossover smash in 1956. Until his first, um... Retirement from secular music, Richard pulled the I'm retiring a bunch of times over his long career. Anyway, uh, up until the fall of 1957, when he enrolled in the Seventh-day Adventist College to train as a preacher, Richard banged out hit after hit. His songs were also widely covered by other artists. His live shows were the first rock spectacles, theatrical lighting, sets, costume changes, and of course, always front and center. The outrageous Little Richard. Oh, 
will hear more from Little Richard, I promise. But right now, let's board a Greyhound in the Big Easy and head on out to the sleepy West Texas town of Lubbock. We noted earlier that three up-and-coming artists were already challenging Elvis for chart supremacy and were taking rock and roll in new and compelling directions. Those of you who dig the shredding guitar gods like Jimi Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen, well, Chuck Berry got that started. Fans of flamboyant piano-banging showmen like Elton John or kinky, highly sexualized performers like David Bowie or Prince can look to Little Richard for the origins. And for fans of singer-songwriter rockers from The Beatles to Bruce Springsteen to Kurt Cobain, well, there's this guy. Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Getting faster Everyone said go ahead and ask her Love like yours will surely come my way And we will open episode 3 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast with an in-depth discussion of the triumph and tragedy of Buddy Holly and more. I'm Christian Swain and I thank you for spending time with us. We hope to see you in episode 3, The Day. The music died. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.